Hi, this is That Night and you are listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Focus podcast. My name is Matt Boisclair and a bad week got worse tonight as Fulham were out the Carabao Cup after a resounding defeat to Brentford. Imagine being a Brentford fan, getting a result like that in the Mickey Mouse Cup less than two months after a result like that was the only thing you wanted in the world. I jest, but we've got far bigger things to worry about than a defeat in a stadium, which is a mismatch of colours, which made my eyes go funny all night. Can things get any better this weekend? We're here to look ahead to the trip to play Wolves at Molyneux on Sunday. Plus, Daddy joins me a little later on for a Bobby Zamora in-focus chat. I've got Ben and Baldo with me, so let's get straight into it. Fulham. Right, lads, I suppose we'd better just take a quick look at that absolute shit show um, in Hounslow this evening. Baldwin, give me your thoughts on the 3-0 defeat in the Carabao Cup to Brentford tonight. Well, you you said it absolutely perfectly. It's a shit show. Shit show. You can't really put it any better than that, or more clearly than I did. I think the only real bright spark of the game happened to be Adamola Lookman, who looked. God, there's going to be so many puns on that throughout the season. He, he looked incredible for the first, you know, for the brief forty-five minutes that he was on, and hopefully he's managed to put his way into the starting lineup on Saturday, because on Sunday rather, because he looked like the only one who could really be bothered to be there. And a brief word on another debutant, uh, Ola Aina. Um, yeah, he wasn't exactly the most thrilling of players, was he? He looked okay in bits, but overall, if we're relying on him to solve our right-back issue this season, then we really are going to struggle. Yeah, I, I didn't think there was much to write home about with, with him either. Um, pretty dour debut, if I'm honest. Saw nothing from him that made me think that he's going to be adequate cover for Kenny Tete if Tete's out for any length of time. Um, And Baldo as well, I'm going to come to you uh, on Jean-Michel Serri really quickly. Yeah, just another player that flat to deceive. I know he got a lot of stick on Twitter and social media and through everything. The the main premise of it being, you know, why do we still why are we still playing a player who obviously doesn't want to be here, and that's my that's my thoughts as well. He, he clearly he clearly has his mind elsewhere. So why not just you know just 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 end it all, just get rid of him. It's it's not helping us. It's not it's not helping anyone. All right, and I'm going to come to you, Ben. I know you were kind of uh, half had half an eye on it tonight. What were your thoughts on the game? The bits that you saw. Yeah, it's it's not really an ideal result against a championship team. Uh, still shipping three goals, we're doing all season. We just looked devoid of confidence. That, that no one seems to know what they're doing. No one seems to know what the plan is. Our one method of attack seems to be get the ball out wide and whip it into the box, which sometimes pays off when you've got Mitrovic up front, but when you've got AK-47, uh, it, it just wasn't working. He was but, shocking. Um, he was shocking tonight, AK forty seven. I thought he had a dreadful game. I like the one he put on Sorensen. That made it worth watching. Apart from <laughs> yeah. that. It didn't do much. Yeah. No, he didn't. Um I mean Aina on the right looked he gave the ball away a few times. It looked alright going forward, but defensively he looked a bit unsure. 
But Lookman looked very good when he came on. Um, hopefully see some good stuff from him this season. Yeah, well, we crash out of the cup then. Poor result against uh, against that lot. But as we said uh, a couple of months ago, we've always got Wembley and Wembley trumps everything. But we do have much bigger problems to uh, to solve than, uh, than going out of the cup, that's for sure. Um, let's come on to the Premier League then and back to Sunday. I just want to come to you both quickly on this as well. I mean, Ben, you and I spoke about this on the show earlier in the week, but it's, it's to do with Tony Khan and his, his comments on Twitter and trying to take the world on using his Twitter account. I think we all agreed uh, the other day that him staying away from Twitter altogether would be the best thing for the good of, not only for him, but for the club as well. Since then, Scott Parker's publicly condemned Tony for apologising for the team's performance, which in Scott Parker's opinion wasn't warranted. Surely a public argument between the director of football and the head coach, Ben, is the last thing we need at the moment. Yeah, you start to think, do all the cracks starting to appear? Like Carragher said on Monday Night Football the other night, he was coming out and saying he's a clown, he needs to shut up. And you're starting to think, are we starting to look a bit like a joke, a bit of a joke club? Because you said the other night, Frenchy, um, you know, the one thing uh, we want to do is compete. All the fans want is for the team to be respectable and to compete. And Scott Parker's basically being told by Tony Khan on Twitter that he's not doing good enough and the team's not good enough. And, you know, it, it's Scott's um, sort of role to apologise for a bad performance, not Tony Khan's. He doesn't have to come out and apologise for the team. Um, and you just hope that this can be sort of put behind us and they can talk about this in person and get over it and hope it doesn't keep coming back to haunt us. I completely agree with you that it's Scott Parker's uh, responsibility to apologise where apologies are necessary for how the team play. Baldo, for you, is this a storm in a teacup or is there something more to it, do you think, to worry about? Um, I think it is slightly worrying, the fact that Parker has decided to keep this in the public eye, as it were. I think this is certainly something that should have been dealt with behind, behind closed doors. I think it should have been a. I assume Scott Parker has Tony Khan's number. You'd, you'd assume it would. But it should have just been a, a message, a phone conversation happening on, you know, Tuesday morning slash afternoon, just saying, "What are you doing? Let's just breathe the air." I don't think it's something that really should have been kept in the public eye. We sh- we should be doing our best to try and calm the situation down, and that's in you know in the role that we have. That's probably Scott Parker's role, and he should have just kept his. I was going to say kept his mouth shut, but that comes across a bit rude. He just should have, again, just try to calm the situation down, just try and you know not mention it at all. I think bringing it out and you know, adding fuel to the fire just doesn't help anyone. Well, we've spoken about Adam Ola Lutman already. Uh, we signed him on loan from RB Leipzig this week. Um, he played a few times for Everton between 2017 and 2019, but he's not the defender we've been crying out for. Uh, we looked shocking at the back again at Brentford. Um, but, you know, it, it was our second string, arguably, against Brentford. But the real problem is the fact that the first team are playing this way as well. Firstly, what's your initial reaction to, to the signing? OK, we saw a bit of him tonight and he looked exciting. Um, and secondly, Baldo, how many defenders do you think that we really need to sign before Monday's deadline? Chances are they're not going to feature on Sunday at Wolves, even if we get them in before then. But you know, that we've then got a couple of weeks afterwards, haven't we, where there's an international break to try and bed them in? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take the first question. Lookman, I've always 
bit of the, you know we needed to get the centre back position addressed first before we sort of, before we moved on to any other positions. But if we were to move into any other positions, a winger slash forward is probably where we needed to look because if we aren't going to stop goals, uh, stop teams scoring against us, then the best we could do is try and you know do what we did against Leeds in the second game of the season. At least try and get them in a shootout, maybe win games three two rather than rather than losing three or four nil every week. But look, as I said earlier, it looked good. I was slightly promised but you know, slightly excited by what by the move. But again, it wasn't a priority and I won't be happy with that move until everything else falls into place. Realistically, I think we need two centre backs. I Hector, for whatever reason, just hasn't been able to produce anything of note this season. He was terrible again tonight. Whether or not he's just a case of, you know, he hasn't adjusted to Premier League life the way you know, Tim Ream and Dennis Adoy didn't adjust last time around. That's probably the case. And even though he's been, he was fantastic for us in the championship, I think until he proves that he can compete at Premier League level, then we need to find someone else, find someone else who can. So two centre-backs will probably be what we're, what we'll aim for, although something tells me we're only going to get the one, just just because that's how how our luck is at the moment. On the subject of Michael Hector, obviously he was very good last season, but it doesn't take long for a player once they've had a bad game or two to completely lose all confidence. He's not a bad player, but he just he looks a little bit lost at the moment. So I think you could be right. I think we might we might see a couple of defenders come in, and I really hope that you know the addition of a couple of players in the same position will, will push him on and um, be that kick up the backside he needs to rediscover his form. But being untried at this level uh, as he is, you know, is he going to be good enough at this level? I really hope so. What about you, Ben? Do you think that we'll see one or two defenders come in or maybe even zero if um, if the worst happens? Uh, I think we will see a couple. Well, we need to see a couple, really, judging by defence so far. Um I do think one's going to come in, um, he's going to be a good player, he's going to be a starter, someone straight away, um, like you've said, can put pressure on Hector, can make Hector sort of push on. Um, I think we're also going to get someone in, we always seem to do it, sign players who don't seem to have any sort of obvious role. Um, like last time we had, was it Nordvite we had, last time we were Premier League? Um, and he played a few games and disappeared off the face of the earth. And I think we're going to get someone like that again, who will come in, it'll be used as like a, a left back slash centre back, and he'll play one game and he'll disappear again. Um, but the, I mean, the more the better. The, the more sort of competition we can get at the back, it, it can't hurt us from what we've seen so far. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's come on to Wolves then. Raul Jimenez, he scored 27 goals in all competitions. Adama Traore grabbed nine assists, and the pair combined directly for 10 goals, which was the highest combination in the Premier League last season. They'll be pinpointing this game to take three points after two defeats in a row, firstly at home to Man City and then last week's 4-0 thrashing uh, away at West Ham. But with our flimsy defence, Baldo, how do we stop this pair? Can we stop them? I think the only way that we can stop them is effectively stop them getting into the box. And it's something that I've been crying out for probably since the season preview uh, episodes of the podcast is get some solidity in front of the back, in front of the back four, because it's obvious that they need, that they need some help. I think we need to stop looking for attacking players, you know, the likes of Anguisa who can bring the ball up and Kearney and Onoma and just get two solid defensive midfielders to shut up shop. Um, the ideal people for that would be Reed and Lamina, but they're, you know, both both out of action at the moment. We don't know whether or not they're going to be available for Sunday. Hopefully they are. But 
I think that's that's what we need. If not, then maybe someone like Stefan Johansson, who did a reasonable job tonight, but you know, no, nothing spectacular. But just just someone in front of the back four that can that can you know, stop the ball getting into the the box at the earliest opportunity. Do you think Stefan Johansson's going to stay? Um, no. I th- I, re- I read a couple of weeks ago that I think him and McDonald were basically both up for no, up on the chopping block for players who I think we're allowing them to either go on loan or basically free transfers because we can't get rid of them. I will I will be amazed if Johansson sticks around because he's probably not going to get any football or much football this season. Especially now we're out with the Carabao Cup. Yeah, I doubt he's going to stick around for that one FA Cup third round tie. <laughs> All that much. Winston Bogard style, just play that one game. I doubt, I doubt we do that. So, yeah, I, I would be stunned if Stephanie Hansen is still a full and player come Monday. Uh, evening, whenever the window closes. Yeah. Um, what about you, Ben? Have we got any prayer of stopping Raul Jimenez and um, and Adama Traore on Sunday? To be honest, no. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, um, like Baldwin said, we've got to look to try and outscore him if we're going to go there and try and beat him. Um, this season, Jimenez has already scored twice. One against Man City and one against Sheffield United, who last season were pretty solid. Um Jimenez is tall, he's strong, like sort of Mitrovic player, but faster, better with the ball at his feet. Traore is like AK-47, but less of a donkey. Um, he's got a bit of end product to him. And I'm fairly certain I saw an article about how he oils his arms up pre-game in baby oil so players can't grab him. Um, so that, that's what you're up against. And he's just going to beat our fullbacks every time. He's going to, our fullbacks aren't going to keep up with him. He's going to be faster than him. He's going to be better with the ball than them. And... We've basically got to mark Jimenez out of the game, I think. Put Hector on him and just say, don't leave his side. Just try and bully him out of the game. But it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult to try and keep him out. I've never heard that about the baby oil before. That's a fascinating story. Although I heard that you do that to watch Fulham from your sofa, but that's a, that's a story for another day. Um, I do in... in Sunday League. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. Is that why you lose 15-0? Yeah, well, it's... It's not. It doesn't help. It's just a bit of fun. <laughs> Gives your teammates a laugh, if nothing else. Um, in Nuno Espirito Santo's three seasons at the club, Wolves have won the championship. They've had consecutive seventh place finishes, and they've reached the Europa League quarterfinals. Last season, they had eight home wins, seven draws, and just four defeats at Molyneux, and claimed twenty-seven points from thirty against the bottom five. Do we realistically have a chance of getting anything from this game, Baldo? And if so, what's the lineup? Who are you going to pick? Um, I'd go for Rodak, Ariola, and um, Magnus Norman. Oh, wait, he's gone. But basically, all three goalkeepers that we have at the club, just stick them in goal and hope for the, hope for the best. Fabry, yeah. Is he? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, let's have Fabry. Every single goalkeeper. Let's get Van der Sar out of retirement. Stick them all in goal. Just clog up the goal and go for, and hopefully grab a nil-nil from somewhere. That is realistically our best chance. Um, honestly, though, on the subject of keepers, I would, yeah, I, I honestly don't know what the lineup is going to be because the game against Brentford tonight, some players you'd think would start on sat on Sunday, some you don't, so you don't know who's going to start. It, it's a baffling one. I'd go for Ariola in goal personally. Tete, we assume is going to be out, so that probably means a doy. At right back, that probably means Hector Riemann. No, I'll go for Anthony Robinson at left back. He seems to be doing pretty well at the moment. 
Um, Reed and Lamina would be the ones, but we don't know if they're going to be fit. So for the sake of this, let's go Anguissa, Kenny and um, Onima. Then Caviero one wing, Reed on one on the other, and Mitra up front. And honestly, we're still going to lose 5-0, so I don't think it's really, that it really matters at this point, does it? Oh, fucking hell, you two, you're killing me. Bloody Sorry, I mean, why? Why? Is there any reason to be positive at the moment? No. <laughs> well, Ben just said we're going to sign a player like Lenny Norvite, who's, who's never going to play. You're saying we're going to lose 5-0. Jesus Christ. Depressive. Okay, Mr. Positivity, what would you do? Well, I'm I'm all for bringing all the goalkeepers we've we've ever had out of retirement and sticking them all and just filling the goal up with them. I I, I take the nil nil. Um, yeah, I mean you're you're right. I I, I think it, it will be Ariola in goal. It's either going to be Aina or Adoy at right back. Um, probably Adoy because I didn't see anything from Aina tonight that that made me think that um he's anywhere near ready to to play in the Premier League. I think we'll see Joe Bryan at left back. And I think we'll probably see uh, Hector and Ream as centre-halves. And hopefully that'll be the last time that that combination will be used this season. Um, three in midfield. Um, yeah, I mean, Onoma, I, I can't see, I don't think Kenny will play again, will he? Onoma, Angisa, and A.N. Other. Who else do we normally play? Who, who can, well, maybe it will be Kearney then. Maybe it's Kearney. I think we'll see Lookman. And I think we'll see Cavalero, and I think we'll see Mitrovic. I think they'll be the three forwards. How about you, Ben? Any changes to that? Who have I missed? Um, mine's very similar, to be fair. Ariola, Tete, if he's fit, but don't think he will be. Um, I've put Max in a marsh on based on the cup game, but that's gone out the window. So, Ream. <laughs> um, Reed, if he's fit, but probably not going to be. But midfield three, I'd probably go Johansson, Anguisa, Reed. Johansson just be a shithouse and just wallop him every time they come forward. Reed to stand up front and do nothing and miss a few open goals. Uh, I'll have Lookman up front, Mitro and AK-47, because AK-47 is a bit of a laugh if nothing else. But, uh, <laughs> well, he'll, he'll, he'll do someone in. Everyone's already laughing at us at the moment, so yeah, why not? Bloody hell, what a season this is going to be. All right, let's go back and look at a better time. We, Danny and I, spoke about Bobby Zamora, so let's go to that chat. Fulham. Right, I've got Danny with me again this week to talk about another Fulham legend. This week, it's Bobby Zamora. Danny, how are you, mate? How you doing, mate? Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this one. I was a big fan of Zamora. Well, he signed for Fulham in July 2008 as part of a double deal that also saw his West Ham teammate John Pantzel move to South West Six. Cost us just over six million quid for the pair. Both players enjoyed a very successful spell at Fulham, but Bobby Zamora was more of a household name in the Premier League after spells with Spurs and the Hammers. Did the prospect of Zamora replacing McBride excite you? It was obviously a sad time. See him at Bright go. I think everyone would have liked him to stay another couple of years. But I think Zamora was a pretty good player for West Ham. Didn't work out for him at Tottenham, did it? But overall, he was a good replacement, wasn't he? I mean, I think if we're being honest, he had more to his game than McBride did. Well, the squad from the previous season needed a mass overhaul anyway because it was it was pretty dire. And Roy Hodgson 
did really well to keep us up, given the players that were at his disposal, I think. But players that essentially Roy got the best out of in the end. In terms of Zamora, I remember him being at Brighton in the lower leagues and he was absolutely prolific. Every week he seemed to score for Brighton. But then there was a bit of a stigma attached to him when he came to the Premier League. And, you know, there, there were the derogatory songs that were sung, generally making him out to be a bit crap. But he wasn't. Um, and that stigma did follow him to Fulham because he got off to a frosty start with the fans who I, th- I think many of whom did struggle to take to him, uh, certainly at the beginning. Several goals that he scored for us were even tarnished when he used to cup his ear towards the Fulham fans. And we'd then in turn get on his back when he missed chances. What are your memories of that? Yeah, it's sad that that's how it started. And he was obviously the kind of player that would take the the comments he reads on social media and, and the booze in the ground to heart. Um, and we're all human beings. We all feel it differently in that kind of environment, I suppose. And I'm sure he regrets it with hindsight doing the, the year cup in it. It wasn't going to help. It obviously was his way of relieving that frustration and, and proving a point. But in my opinion, he had every right to be frustrated that we were getting on his back. When you normally sign a centre forward, the first thing you think of is they're going to score goals. And he was a different kind of striker. Maybe we hadn't seen many of his type in the past. He was more the feeder for the rest of the team to score goals. I always refer to him as kind of being like the tree trunk that held up all the other branches around him. Uh, and, and everything seemed to be about him holding the ball up and then feeding other people in, you know, runners off of him. And when you took him out of the team, the tree seemed to fall apart. All the branches weren't attached no more. So for me, it was a massive reason why Andy Johnson um, scored the goals he did and why we finished seventh. It wasn't about the fact that he was scoring goals. It was about the fact that he made us a better team. Maybe took us a year to understand and appreciate that. Obviously, in the Europa League season, he scored a few more, but he still played the same role. I just think we slowly began to realise how important he was and appreciate him more. Just think of that turnaround, though, in such a short space of time. We went from a team that was really struggling and just stayed up at Pompey in uh, 2008 by the skin of our teeth to then the next season, adding the likes of Gira and Schwartz and, as you say, AJ Pantzel. And we got into Europe, finishing seventh. That, that is a hell of a turnaround, isn't it, in such a short space of time? That's what I mean about Zamora being a, a better player than McBride. I think Zamora just took us to the next level, I felt. You know, I remember Jamie Carragher saying, of all the strikers he played against, Zamora was one of the ones he didn't enjoy playing against the most because... He would drag you out wide and, and he was a handful of a player. He just he just had everything, didn't he? I mean, if you watch highlights of Zamora's time with Fulham, there's as many assists as there is goals where he's, he's involved in the build-up play. He was a massive part of why we had the, the turnaround we had. I think Fulham was clearly the best spell of his top-flight career and got to play for England as a result of doing well for us. And, and maybe it was just a case of Roy Hodgson just understood the type of player he was more than any other manager and knew how to set up the team around him. Just like we got the best out of most of those players. Well, you can't mention Bobby Zamora without talking about his magnificent contribution to the Europa League run of 2009-10 
I always feel like the European run just means that little bit more because we qualified for it on merit. It wasn't like a fair play thing. We weren't given it on a plate. We qualified on merit via our league standing. Then we did so well in it as well, obviously. And probably some more of that campaign was just completely unplayable. That's the only way you can put it. What are your memories of his performances during that Europa League run? Well, first of all, I totally agree with you. Qualifying through your league position, I think, is is a very big achievement, especially for a club like Fulham. The fact that we were the original team left standing when we got to the final, Atletico Madrid would drop out to the Champions League, a rule that I really don't agree with. So we deserve to be there. And like you said, the manner in which we did it makes it even more of an achievement and even more special. What was my highlight of Zamora during that campaign? It's got to be the Shakhtar goal, hasn't it? I mean, Gira's back heel to him. Them two seem to be uh, on the same wavelength the whole season. Gira doesn't even look. He knows exactly where Zamora is. And Zamora doesn't even have to think about it. Doesn't even take a touch. Just first thing on his mind, hit it. And he couldn't have hit it any sweeter. Shakhtar Donetsk were the best team I've ever seen down at the cottage. So to score a goal of that quality against a side that good, I think makes the goal even more impressive. Of course, there was the the brief battle that he had with Fabio Cannavaro in the Juventus game before getting the equaliser on the night that set us on our way in that game as well. Yeah, yeah. And considering we're talking about a World Cup winning captain uh, and somebody who also won the Ballon d'Or, you know, not many centre-backs that win that. It normally goes to people like Messi and Ronaldo. So we are talking about the top of the top. And Cannavaro had no answer to Zamora. Obviously, going down to 10 men made the comeback possible. I don't know if we would have done it without that. But even with him on the pitch and the way Zamora brushed him off for the first goal, I mean, he made him look very average, didn't he? And very weak. But I just think that's credit to Zamora at... For me, the best target man in the Premier League at that time. Another thing that struck me about that season as well was not just him, but the team in general. When we played in Europe on a Thursday, our results didn't seem to suffer on the Sunday. You know, you'd think that maybe towards the end of the season, we'd start to see the results drop off in the Premier League. But we did all right after um, after coming back, I think. I seem to remember we beat Birmingham and there are a couple of other results, maybe against Wigan as well, where we got the win. And he was still scoring, be it in the Premier League or in Europe. And another one, of course, is the Basel one. We went out and won in Basel, qualified to go through to the next round. And then we beat Manchester United 3-0 at home on the Saturday. We also come back from a European game and drew 0-0 at Anfield. So I think it's credit to both the players and Hodgson. I mean, Hodgson managed the squad very well that season. And I think the way we set up, the focus was always on not losing rather than, you know, going out there, all guns blazing to win a game. And if we was to come away with a nil-nil draw or whatever, then I think Hodgson would have been very happy. And I think we finished 12th in the end, which is a, it's a pretty good effort considering how many games we played in Europe. And our heads could have easily been turned as we got to the latter stages of the knockout. So, all-round great effort from everyone. I think anybody would take 12th at any time now, wouldn't they, in the Premier League? Most most clubs would take that, especially the ones that are fighting to be uh, not to be relegated. But 
Anyway, but I'm going to move on. Um, a playoff final winner for his beloved West Ham to win promotion to the Premier League. An unbelievable campaign to get Fulham to the Europa League final. And then once he left Fulham, another playoff final winner for QPR. It's obviously for him to answer as to what order he puts these achievements in, but how would you rank them? I think, if we're being honest, what was a bigger achievement? Bobby Zamora getting us to a European final or Tom Kearney scoring in a playoff final? Now, obviously, Wembley was a very special day for us, but if we're talking about the achievement, if we're doing it on that basis, then it's not even close. But having said that, you know, that Shakhtar goal is as big as it gets for Zamora on an individual basis. I mean, he scored uh, a very good goal after about 30 seconds away to Wolfsburg, didn't he? But he never had that Dempsey chip or that, you know, Zoltan Gira or Davis moment where he was the real hero in a specific moment. Whereas scoring the winner in a final for both QPR and West Ham, for him personally, he was the hero, you know, he's the one that's remembered for that. I don't know how he would rank it on a personal basis, but it can't get better than scoring the winner in a final for your the team you support. Uh, and I know he supports West Ham, so I would probably say that, then us, then QPR. But then the QPR one was in the last minute, which I think adds something to it. And they were down to 10 men. It's a really good question. I honestly don't know. But if we're talking on football terms, then the Europa League is by far the biggest achievement. Yeah, I think so. I would be genuinely interested to hear his take on it, though. I'd love to know where he ranks those three. Anyway, let's let's move on again. So I remember going to watch his England debut against Hungary. I never bothered going to watch England games. They just they don't bother me. But I went to that, and I think you went to that too as well, didn't you? He would have been in that England World Cup squad in South Africa that summer in 2010. Had it not been for the injury that really hampered him at the end of the season, would have been lovely to have seen a Fulham player at the World Cup playing for England, wouldn't it? Definitely, a hundred percent. And. You know, Zach Knight obviously was the first player of our lifetime to, to get called up for England. But with Zamora, it felt like he was genuinely there because he was one of the top four strikers for England at the time. It wasn't because of injuries or because we were just going to give him a trial run in a friendly. And like I said earlier, for me at the time, he was the best target man in the Premier League. And when you think of the, the kind of strikers we had at that time, it really is a big achievement that he was given an opportunity and 100% he would have gone to the, the World Cup. He may maybe wouldn't have started, but he would have been involved. No doubt about that. He wouldn't have been going to the World Cup as that 23rd player, just sitting on the bench as a ball boy. He would have definitely been involved and it would have been such a, a proud moment for the younger generation of Fulham fans that don't remember George Cohen. Would have been brilliant, but... Just like with the Europa League final, the only reason we didn't come out on top is because he was injured. And I'm, I'm adamant about that. And, and obviously those injuries caused him to miss out on the World Cup, which is a great shame. Um, I'm like you. I, I wasn't a, a big fan of going and watching England games, but it became very clear that he was going to be involved in that hungry match. And I'd never seen a Fulham player play for England live. So I somehow... I think it was through Facebook, someone couldn't go. Uh, I managed to get tickets uh, and it was one I'll never forget because, you know, we've seen some right 
average Fulham teams over the years, haven't we? So to see a Fulham player play for England is a wonderful thing. And hopefully it won't be long till we see the next one. Just reminded me, actually, I, I sent my ticket to Bobby Zamora from that England game um, and asked him to sign it and then just never heard anything back. And then six months later, it turned up. It completely made my day. I, I'd just forgotten all about it. I think what made that even more special as well was the fact that we hadn't signed somebody who was in and around the England squad. His performances for Fulham lifted him up to the level where he was considered for England. And after everything that he'd been through with us as well, it, it was just fantastic. And it's such a shame that it didn't quite work out with him because because of injuries in the end. That would have been so nice to have seen him achieve something with England. But hey-ho, that's them's the breaks, I suppose, aren't they? Well, he did get himself back fit in time for the new season. By this time, Roy Hodgson had left for Liverpool and Mark Hughes had taken over at Fulham. A month into the season, though, and he broke his leg against Wolves. One way or another, his partnership with Andy Johnson never really had much time to develop further after that first prolific season. One of them always seemed to be injured. Really could have been a potent partnership for us for a few years if it had the chance, couldn't it? It would have been a a fantastic partnership, I feel, because they were completely different players, but they complemented each other so well. And I think Zamora was just one of those players that he got the best out of Andy Johnson. I think he got the best out of Gira. I just think he was one of those kind of strikers that whoever played with him, he would have upped their game. And it's a shame that we didn't get a chance to see more of it because when we finished seventh, it was a big part down to their partnership. But having said that, I wouldn't go back and change the past because it's unfortunate for Andy Johnson, but Gira Samora was a pivotal part of what gave us that success in Europe. Yeah, there were some great memories from from that that period of time. And yeah, I wouldn't change it. Apart from losing in the Europa League final. Other than that, I wouldn't change it. Let's come on to your favourite Bobby Zamora goal then. I think it has to be the Shakhtar goal. Um, A lot of his goals were straightforward, you know, typical striker goals. His very first goal for the club against Bolton. I was going to say that one, yeah. at, At the Putney end. He does a really good turn where yeah. he, he leaves the defender uh, behind, takes a touch and just side foots it into the, the far right corner. It's a really underrated goal, you know, the skill yeah. involved and, and one that um, doesn't get shown enough. Just because it was so early on in his Fulham career, but I, I would pick that one. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously the Shakhtar one was a superb goal. Also the Wolfsburg one for what it meant, but that Bolton goal, I've always loved that goal. And I was I really went mad when that went in at the time. It was, it was just a, a lovely finish. Well, he left to go to QPR in January 2012. I had mixed emotions when he left as we'd been through a lot with him. With 37 goals in 135 games for the club, where does he rank amongst the greatest Fulham strikers of all time for you? Oh, greatest of all time. Um, Well, for starters, just to break it down, in my lifetime, only Louis Sahar is better, in my opinion. Uh, I would put him above Mitrovic. I would put him above McBride. Um, If you do the whole history of the club, you've got Ronnie Rook that steals the show pre-World War II, Bedford Jezzard, people like Alan Clark and Gordon Davis, of course. In the whole history of the club, I would say probably about 6th or 7th, which I think is no mean feat, considering some of those players played like 400 games for the club, you know, and, and he only played 135. It's a pretty big achievement. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair, actually, because it, he did it on the biggest stage. And even with Mitrovic, you know, Mitrovic has been superb for Fulham and his, his attitude's been outstanding to, to stay with us when we went down. 
But Bobby Zamora was was not only scoring them in the Premier League, but scoring them in Europe as well. And to go on that run uh, to, to get us to the Europa League final. Without him, we, we wouldn't have got to that Europa League final. And also, I find Zamora's first touch was just incredible. And Mitrovic is sometimes not quite, you know, one point. He doesn't hold the ball up as effectively as Zamora did. But that's nothing against Mitrovic. I mean, we're talking about Zamora getting us to a European final. I think it's very justified what we're saying. It's nothing against Mitrovic. He's been a brilliant player for Fulham, as was McBride. But as target men go, Zamora was just an all-round better player than both. Fair enough. Well, let's come on to a rating for Bobby Zamora's career at Fulham then. What would you rate Bobby out of 10? The Europa League final and that run will never be forgotten. Without him, none of it would have been possible. He's got to go down as a Fulham legend for the achievement of the team. And for me, he was arguably the most important player of that team. A 9 out of 10. It's just a shame he wasn't fit for the final. And the difference on the night was the fact that Diego Forlan was the best player on the pitch. But he was fit and Zamora wasn't. If Zamora had been fit, I think we would have won. And it's a shame it worked out like that. But equally, I think it epitomises how crucial he was. Yeah, 9 out of 10 for me. What would you give him? I'm also going to say a 9 out of 10. And it would have been a 10 if it hadn't have been for that frosty, cold relationship. And I, I don't think that ever really, truly went away, to be honest. I agree yeah, with that. He, even after everything. So I'd have to, and that's, he's as much to blame for that as the supporters are, but it, it did exist. And for that reason, it's, it's a point off, but as a footballer, outstanding for Fulham, I enjoyed watching him. I enjoyed watching his goals and the way that he played. And, uh, and we enjoyed the, the fruits of his labor as well, you know, with the achievements that we, we made with, with getting into Europe, the run that we went on and, and everything that went with it. So, yeah, a, a brilliant time to be a Fulham fan when, when Bobby Zamora was at his absolute peak, for sure. I think we're on exactly the same page with that. It's just one of them things. But on the pitch, can't fault him. Top class. I think that's a perfect place to end it, mate. Thank you for that. Let's pass it back to the main show. Fulham. Right, lads. Well, we've got Stato stats in front of us. Baldo, take it away. Right, so let's start off with our record against Wolves. Um, Over the past years, uh, Fulham have won 26 of the games. We have drawn 23 and Wolves have won uh, 40-43 of the games. We've won one of our last five games against Wolves, which was the 2-0 win um, at home in February 2018, uh, which was at the beginning of our 23-game unbeaten run. Uh, Goals from Sessegnon and Alexandra Mitrovic. Our last away win which we always do very well in, in the Premier League. So keep an eye out for this. Last away win was against against Wolves came in January 2015 in the FA Cup, which I don't know if this technically counts as a win because it was a 3-3 draw, which we won on penalties. And I was at the game that night. And it was, if anyone else is there will remember, it was the snowy game in Wolverhampton. And it was, it was actually you, really... A, why? Why did you go to that? Because I was in, I was at university in Stoke at the time, and it was on my way back home from uni after Christmas. What? Why? Why were you at university in Stoke? Because <laughs> they were the only ones that offered the course. Anyway, I have I have Marcus Bettinelli's game worn shirt from that night, so it'll always be a special night for me. Anyway, um, our last game against Wolves was a one 0 loss 
uh, back in the Premier League back in May 2019. We were already relegated at that point. And I believe this is one of the things that I think that was Harvey Elliott's debut, if anyone still wants to remind ourselves of that person. Um, so that's our WEF record against Wolves. Now let's take a look at their story from last season. And if you thought our season in the Europa League was long, you just wait until you hear about Wolves's. Their season started on the 25th of July when the qualifying round and it ended on the 11th of August. So literally just under two months ago in the knockout stage of the Europa League season that went on for longer than a full calendar year. They played a total of 59 games in a single season, which is actually just four short of us when we played uh, in 2009-10 when we had 63 in the league, they started very slowly, only getting their first uh, league win seven games in. Before that, they'd drawn four and lost two. So hopefully we can get some of that because they'll have played in Europe previously. So they're uh, slow off the mark again here. However, after getting that first win, they embarked on an 11-game unbeaten league run. They included a 2-0 away win over Manchester City. And that included five wins and six draws. Um, after the restart, they continued their good form by winning five, drawing one and losing three games, which guided them to a seventh place finish, narrowly missing out on Europa League spot, only on goal difference to Spurs. Uh, in Europe, they breezed through the group stages of the Europa League and reached the quarterfinals being, before being knocked out by eventual winners Sevilla. And they were knocked out of the FA Cup in the third round and out of the EFL Cup in the fourth round. Lovely stuff, mate. Thank you for that. Ben, over to you. Yeah, I'm talking about Wolves' stats from last season. Um, so last season, they averaged 1.6 points per home game and then lost four league games at home all season um, to Chelsea, Spurs, Liverpool and Arsenal. The last non-top six team to beat them at home was Crystal Palace in January 2019. And Despite that pretty good form at home, they've only scored 1.4 goals per game, which is lower than league average of 1.5 goals per home team in the Premier League but they've only conceded one goal a game at home. And 70% of those goals they've conceded came in the second half. <laughs> Last season, they, they only scored one goal in the first 15 minutes of any home game, which, based on our season so far, is quite lucky. I'm sure we'll change that. Uh, but once they do take the lead at home, they tend not to concede the equaliser. They took the lead eight times last season and didn't concede an equaliser in any of those games. And we all know Portugal basically send all their young players to Wolves and let them develop. Um, they've now got 10 Portuguese players on their books, along with a Mexican who speaks Portuguese, a Brazilian who speaks Portuguese, and two Spanish players, which is basically Portuguese with a different J. Um, ah, 14 players fluent in Hispanic. It's not bad. They've signed Fabio Silvio, who's an 18-year-old Portuguese centre-forward from Porto, for a club record £35 million. Played 12 games last year for Porto, and he only scored one goal. They will send Marcal, the 31-year-old Brazilian left-back from Lyon. Or Marcel, I don't think anyone really cares. We certainly don't. Um, it's 1.8 million from Lyon. Played 11 games last season for Lyon, only getting one assist. They will send Vitinha, a Portuguese midfielder from Porto on loan. A 20-year-old who's only made eight appearances from the bench last season for Porto, and he didn't score any goals or any assists. They're not very prolific signings so far, to be fair. And Nelson Semedo from Barcelona as a right-back to replace Mac Doherty, who, of course, went to Spurs for quite a lot of money, I believe. The 26-year-old played for Barca for three years and won two La Liga titles and one Copa del Rey in that time. And that's all I've got. Amazing that they're managing to sign players that were, you know, winning 
La Liga titles when a couple of years ago they were in the same division as us, you know, in the championship. But yeah, they've they've kind of really pulled away from us in, in the last couple of years, and you know, good luck to them. Their, their supporters have been long suffering. Really oh, I think they've really developed from having a, an identity as a club, and they've you know they've come in they've come in and said you know, we've got these these owners and these managers, and I think their managers good friends with, or their owners good friends with um, Cristiano Ronaldo's agent. I can't remember his name, but I'm sure Baldwin will shout it at me in a second. And Jose Mendes, you know, do you think? Yes, that's the one. There we, yeah. there we go. Thank you. Um, but they've developed this identity, and it's something we don't have. We're having this stats machine that Tony Khan's got that no one knows how it works. They seem to develop this identity of getting young Portuguese players, and, and they'll start breeding them soon, I think, in test tubes. Well, good luck to them. All right, so let's look at Wolves' key players then. We've already mentioned him, Raul Jimenez, the 29-year-old Mexican striker. Been prolific since joining a couple of years ago. He's scored 30 goals in the league across those two seasons and has already got a couple this season as well. He's featured in every game since Wolves have returned to the Premier League in 2018. And majority of his goals come in the penalty area and he's very much right-footed. Adama Traore was a product of the Barcelona Academy. He's really flourished at Wolves since signing from Middlesbrough. He either plays out on the wing or in the wing-back position. And he's known for his rapid speed and athletic physique. Recent seasons, he's added that bit of technical quality to his game as well by registering four goals and nine assists last season. No one in the Premier League had more successful dribbles per game than Traore. Uh, he averaged five per game last season. Connor Cody, centre-back and captain for Wolves. I remember a time when we signed their centre-back, Richard Stearman, who was you know, one of their better players at the time. And now they've got Connor Cody, who's played 57 games last season in the Premier League and across Europe. Didn't miss a single minute in the Premier League or in Europe last season. Plays in the middle of a back three. He's got players like Willie Bowley, uh, Roman Sace or Dendonka either side of him. And very much the, at the heart of their defence, uh, a big leader. Um his battle with Mitrovic might be uh, one to watch on Saturday if the ball is up that end of the field for any length of time. Let's hope it is. Um, then there's Ruben Neves and Howell Moutinho. Uh, the midfield duo are the most used pairing at Wolves, either in a 5-2-3 formation or a 5-3-2. Uh, between them, they got eight assists and three goals last season. Uh, they're the main engine of the team. Everything goes through them and nobody plays more passes than them in the team. Moutinho particularly averages two key passes per game. So if that isn't all depressing enough for you, then let's come on to a score prediction. Ben, I'm going to come to you first. How many are we going to lose by? Sorry, what's the score going to be? <laughs> um, positive thinking here. I think we're going to lose 2-1. And that's me being, <laughs> that's me being positive. So that is super, that super, super, super positive of you, mate. Thanks for that. Um, I'm going to say three all. Why not? If if West Brom can draw three all with Chelsea, we can draw three all with Wolves. Wolves lost four nil last week for goodness' sake. At West Ham, West Ham are shit. I mean, they're they're not as bad as us at the moment, but they're not a good side, and they absolutely battered Wolves last week. We could get something out of this. Our fortunes have got to turn at some point, and we will pick up some points this season. So. Why not a point at Molyneux? Go on, Baldo. 
Well, I gave my prediction earlier five nil, and I, I said that sarcastically. But the more I think about it, the more I think it's more it's more than likely going to be a reality. Uh, yeah, I'll go with I'll go with a three nil, just because we'll, we'll concede the standard three, and I just don't think we'll be able to produce much. I should I should, pro- I should also probably add I would have Lookman in my team as well. We discussed it earlier, but he's just so new that he just hasn't properly registered in the team yet. So. I'd put I'd put him as well, probably in front of Bobby Reed. So yeah, three 0 Lookman stars. Well, I don't really like to go out on a negative note, so I'm going to leave you with this thought, and that is the thought of Ben oiling himself up, strapping Northern lad, sat in front of his TV on Sunday lunchtime just before he has his roast dinner, sat there with a the baby oil, oiling up his arms, ready to watch us get a point at Molyneux. That's it for this week. Thanks, lads, for joining me as ever. Thanks to those of you at home who've stuck with us despite things not going so well on the pitch at the moment. J-Mac will be back on Monday with reaction to the Wolves game before the international break gives us all a little respite. In the meantime, keep your fingers crossed for some defensive reinforcements. Speak to you soon. Cheers.